Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University. I am here with Sean Crossan. He is the leader of the Sport and Exercise Research Group at NUI Galloway. He is the co-director of the MA in Sports Journalism and Communication and he is working at the Houston School of Film and Digital Media. Thank you very much for joining us today, Sean. Thank you, Keith. Delighted to speak with you. Sean, I was, um, we're here today to talk about your, your book, Gaelic Games on Film, From Silent Films to Hollywood Hurling, Horror, and the Emergence of Irish Cinema, which is out from Cork University Press. It's just a fascinating book. I, I, I really loved reading it, and I want to encourage all of our listeners to go pick up a copy right away. Uh, can you tell us uh, how you developed this project? So yeah, it's um, it's a long story. I, I I touch on this briefly in in my uh, initial acknowledgements, but the book is about um, it's, it was over twelve years in in the, the in the writing, and perhaps even longer than that if you go back to my initial um, interest and engagement with Gaelic games. Um, I suppose I I the the background. And to give some context for that, uh, in Ireland, um, perhaps uh, unusually and not, not entirely uniquely, but it's certainly one of the distinctive features of Irish popular culture is that the in terms of sport and sport, the engagement with sport in Ireland, uh, the most popular sports um, are the amateur indigenous sports, Gaelic football and hurling or Gaelic games, as we call them collectively. And um, I grew up in a context in Ireland where uh, Gaelic games were a key part of the local community and of what in many ways defined the community and that if anything has increased with the increasing secularization of Ireland uh, country that for many people I think and many of your listeners perhaps will be associated with historically with uh, Catholicism the Catholic Church and uh, as a powerful force in Irish society but as that force has has declined, um, Gaelic games and indigenous sport has has grown in importance as a key kind of social uh, fulcrum for for communities, particularly in rural Ireland. And I grew up in in rural Ireland and grew up in a context where Gaelic games was was a key component within that society. And latterly, as a as an academic, um, I developed a specialism within film studies here at NUI Galway and about 
Well, two, in 2006, there was an academic conference here in NUI Galway. It was the Irish um, Sports History Association, and it was uh, hosted um, by a, a colleague of mine at that time in NUI Galway who asked me at the time, is there, is there much Gaelic games on film? And it hadn't been something I had given a great deal of consideration to at that time, but it began a journey that 13 years later... Um, a fascinating journey, really, for me to find that there is a, a, an extraordinary history of the depiction of Gaelic games on Ireland that goes right back to the very earliest days of the 20th century and that it provides, a, again, a very unique and uh, insight into the sports as they developed through the 20th century and into the 20th first century, but also not just in terms of the insight it gives you into how the sports have developed and, of course, uh, the the films of the early twentieth century into the mid twentieth century are the only moving image record we have prior, of course, to television or the advent of dig- other digital media forms in the more recent past. Um, and in that respect, there is a historic, a crucial historical record of the evolution of these um, sports. But they also are interesting in so far as they give us an insight into the differing ways in which sport features um, in popular culture both from the point of view of how these sports functioned within uh, an international context, particularly within American cinema. And I go into some detail in that in the book and what I call Hollywood hurling chapter, how it functioned within kind of mainstream international film. And also, and laterally, uh, and how it functioned within indigenous Irish cinema and became a key part of of. A defining period in the emergence of a distinctive film culture within Ireland in the latter half of the 20th century. I, I mean, I was, um, while reading, just impressed with the diversity of avenues in which you kind of pursue these these questions of, of Gaelic games and film. I mean, looking, um, I, I think most for me, most what I was most interested in before I picked up the book was this question of kind of the way in which sport helped shape Irish identity and politics. That's what I was prepared for the whole book to be about. But in fact, you touch on uh, a very much on the, the way in which sport helped shape this development of this film culture, as you're mentioning, but also uh, shaped the development of, of um, film itself, even in your early chapters. And, and, and so much of our cinema might be shaped by by sport. I, in my reading, and you can tell me if, if this was wrong, Sean, uh, I kind of read, I mean, you have nine chapters, but I read it in four blocks. You have kind of your your, your early block on, on early cinema in new, the newsreel era. Then you have this kind of international view with the Hollywood hurling uh, and your look at Rooney. And then the the, the growth of a kind of Irish film, um, uh, what, what you might call an Irish film industry uh in 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 the post-war period and then finally a kind of more contemporary look at at irish uh, film and its engagement with these sports so i i want to go chronologically i hope that that works with you um so i was hoping (laughs) i was hoping we could start a little bit with um this era of early cinema and 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 where are we first seeing gaelic sport in film and how does that help uh, influence kind of the, the, the film as a technology even? 
Well, yeah, so the, the, the beginnings, as I talk about in the book, go right back to what were at the time called actuality, early actuality films. This was before even the the, uh, for the newsreel, what became the newsreel became established in the in towards the end of the first decade of the 20th century. But right back at the very beginning, uh, in a way, like we have, of course, we go back to the Lumiere brothers in France and what they were pioneering at that time. And you have a, you know, contemporaneously in the U.S. with what Thomas Edison and his collaborators were, were developing. But in those very, very early days of film, film was a need uh, of, a, of a subject in a way because it was extraordinarily new and experimental. And even people that we now associate as being kind of extraordinary key figures in the popularization of film, like, for example, Charlie Chaplin, himself at one point regard, remarked that, oh, it's just a fad. He wasn't convinced that it would survive. And of course, we now know it went on to become this huge, huge international popular <laughs> cultural form that you know has influenced a, a range of subsequent forms. But in those very early days, so film, this new experimental, what it was the cinematograph in, in, in um, France or what became movies in the U.S., um, it needed a subject, and sport was uh, uh, already uh, a popular subject. It was already uh, had a captive audience, and so so far you had sport. And, and interestingly, of course, the two of them, in the way, in, in so far as that the codification or the whole setting down of rules around sport emerged just before film came along. So the whole modernization period, sport uh, provided the early filmmakers with a, a, a subject that in its both in its popularity and its engagement of a wide diverse audience and also um in the in, in the way in which sport was the codification of sport so it gave it a, a a limited canvas in a time when cameras weren't that um mobile quite rudimentary um, you could set up a camera and you could film like dra- a dramatic activity um and sport provided that so whether it was in the u.s where sport was a was a key component of early cinema early edison film or in for the lumia brothers in france were similarly many of their early films focused on sport and in ireland eventually when early filmmakers uh, did began to um, film uh, um, in ireland and to develop uh, film production companies began to emerge indigenous sports from very early on began to be to be filmed now unfortunately um the first decade we don't have any surviving films but we have records and in terms of um newspaper reports of the screenings of early uh of films of early films of hurling and of gaelic games and of uh, some indication there of the the responses that they were getting in terms of i mean one can imagine at the time film was a very new form and then you combine that with an increasingly popular form of indigenous um, cultural practice that they, they had uh, an important role in both in mutually popularizing this new form and, in, and the growing popularization of indigenous sport in Ireland. But as we get into the 1910s, fortunately, we do have a few films that survive from the 1910s. There's a, a, an early 1914 um, actuality film uh, of uh, the All-Ireland replay of that year in um, Gaelic football between Wexford, County Wexford and, and County uh, Kerry. And that survives. 
one one minute 49 seconds survive of it but that in itself is fascinating giving us a sense of the changing rules and the changing patterns within the sport of that period and four years later in a fiction film again by another early irish uh, indigenous production company called the film company of ireland in their first kind of major feature film a five reel film called knock Nagao, we have a, a one minute sequence featuring hurling which is the earliest uh, episode on film we have of that sport and in each of those we get these uh, really kind of quite extraordinary insights into the sports as they were being perceived and uh, engaged in at that time and indeed in an earlier period because not Nagao the film was based on a on a novel that was set in the mid 19th century so these were filmmakers looking back to the sport even before it was codified um, and the in both instances in throughout this period sport was an important part of the providing uh, again a, a popular subject for emerging film companies that could help them to bring this new art form this new technology to, to audiences across Ireland, much as it was doing across the world, whether it was in the United States, in France, in Britain, or, or, or in other parts of the world. And that was a, a big question, at least in the, the, the second chapter of your book, in some ways, on the, on the newsreel era, which is who gets to produce these images of Irish sport and, and to what end? But I wondered if you can tell us a little bit about um, about sport in this newsreel era, who was who was filming Irish sport uh, to what end, and and maybe a little bit about uh, the GAA and their response, and, and and maybe tell our listeners a little bit who the GAA is because they're such an important uh, organization within your study. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, maybe I'll in response that I might start <laughs> at the end of your question if, if you don't mind, and start a little bit about who the GAA are because of course I'm living in the context where I don't always appreciate that for international listeners and, and uh, audiences that they may not and probably aren't aware of, of what the G or what the, those that those letters stand for the Gaelic Athletic Association um, are and they are an extraordinarily important uh, institution in Ireland. Um, they were founded the, as an association in 1884 founded to for the preservation and the the promotion of indigenous sport and they were founded in a, in a very challenging uh, period of course this was not that long after the Irish famine it was a period when of course Ireland was still very much part of the United Kingdom as in what is now the Republic of Ireland uh, it was a period of, of great poverty and and emigration from Ireland um, but it was also a period of, of uh, uh, when groups in Ireland were attempting to uh, bring uh, to re to bring the culture back to bring the society back and to grow a sense of a distinct culture and a distinct political kind of entity in ireland you had a growing a rising tide of nationalism and both political nationalism and cultural nationalism and within that, that period the 1880s 1890s sport was one of the most important uh, aspects of that growing movement which would eventually lead to uh, a rising a rebellion in 1916 and eventually uh, a war of independence and eventually the setting up of what would become the Republic of Ireland um, in 1920, 
1922, but well, the free state at that time and Republic of Ireland from 1949. But in the period we're talking about, the foundation of the of the GA, sport became a, a very, very important and perhaps the most important aspect of popular nationalism. Um, it was something that, uh, as it was described by uh, latterly by historians, that, that took off like a prairie fire across Ireland um, in, in a period of great um, difficulty, great challenges, uh, Gaelic games in particular, provided uh, it, it was about the distinctiveness of what the sports were, as well as, the, of course, the enjoyment that they provided to people who, uh, who either participated in it or, or went to watch the games. But they allowed um, for, in a context where for most Irish people, um, unlike most other European countries, uh, to a large extent, the one of the most distinguishing aspects of your identity is your language. And the Irish language for most people was was no longer their, their main, so as it is today. The language went into decline with the famine in the 1840s and also for various other reasons to do it. Um, oppression under colonialism, but not, we don't have time to get into now. But just to say that sport, sport became very, very important as a defining a distinctive defining element of what it was to be Irish in the context of a rising tide of Irish nationalism. And this would feed into uh, through the, the late 19th and into the 20th century, and indeed continues to be an important part of that process to this to, to today. So the GEA has been extraordinarily successful as it grew now it, it, in Ireland today, it has grown throughout the 20th century. And we have an extraordinary stadium, one of the largest stadiums in Europe, um, Crow Park, which uh, has a capacity of 85,000. Uh, it attracts capacity crowds for the major competition, which are the All-Ireland Finals in hurling and in Gaelic football. It is the most popular sport, sports across the island of Ireland. That's the other thing, including in, within the north of Ireland, particularly among the nationalist community in the north of Ireland. Um, and these sports are continued to have that as a key part of them is that they are amateur sports, but played at a very, very high uh, level, um, uh, but nonetheless by by amateurs. And they've had an international imprint among the Irish diaspora, including in Australia and the US. Um, there are over some 3000 clubs now inter- between Ireland and internationally that are engaged in um, Gaelic games. Just one other thing I'll say about the GA, and then I'll come to the, the film element, um, is that one of the kind of critical decisions that Gaelic Athletic Association made from the very beginning was that it would build it, the core um, entity for Gaelic games from the beginning was the parish, the local kind of parish, the local community, and then the local county. So there's kind of two levels, if you like. Well, there's a variety of levels, but for most clubs, uh, for most people engaging with Gaelic games, they're engaged by the local club um, at their parish level and then by their county. And those connections became critical to how people's own sense of identity, sense of place became bound up. And sport more than any Gaelic game, more than any other force perhaps in Ireland, has affirmed and popularizes pe- people's own sense of identity as bound up with either a, a distinctive place and distinctive county a, in Ireland. And that's continued to to be dis- sustained right up until today. Now, when we get into the 1920s and onwards, in terms of how film engaged with Gaelic games, there was a a, a period of hope that I've already referred to in terms of an indigenous film culture in the 1910s. You had a number of uh, 
companies com- coming into existence for whom Gaelic Games was part of the films that they produced, including um, the Irish animated picture company, the early actuality company that produced the first the surviving footage of the 1914 All-Ireland replay in football and the film company of Ireland that was up in 1916 and produced Knocknagow. Unfortunately, both of these companies didn't survive the kind of revolutionary period that is the 1910s for, for a variety of reasons. And in the, in the immediate aftermath of independence in 1922 for the Republic of Ireland, indeed similar things applied in the north of Ireland for different reasons, um, the government uh, were not very supportive of indigenous film culture. In fact, film, for what was a very, in the south, Catholic, and for similar reasons, the Protestant church also had, had a, uh, in the north of Ireland, had a, had a kind of a... Uh, a lot of suspicion around film as a form, as a decadent foreign form that might um, impede the attempts to promote a kind of a strong Catholic identity in Ireland. So, in fact, one of the first pieces of legislation that the new parliament in the south of Ireland, the Dáil Éireann, as it's called, um, passed was the Censorship of Films Act, which was a very, very restrictive act and an act that was very much informed by Catholic concerns and Catholic dogma. So, for this reasons, these reasons, there was very little indigenous film culture developed or an infrastructure for film to be to develop as an indigenous culture in Ireland in the after, in the nineteen twenties and into nineteen thirties. What film work was done was done by international companies uh, outside of Ireland, um, um, particularly when we talk about newsreels, British film companies, film companies like British Pathé, like British Gowment. Um, and British Movie Tone, um, to name three of the most prominent. Um, these companies were, again, as their names would suggest, primarily focused at a British uh, market for their newsreels. But they did produce some uh, Irish items and items, and co- quite more, I think, than most Irish people would would expect, or, or given that they were primarily British companies. But they did produced quite a number of, of newsreel episodes about Gaelic uh, games, both Gaelic football and hurling. Um, partly these were produced because they were trying to sign get contracts signed with Irish um, exhibitors, Irish cinemas, and as part of the deals, to sweeten the deal, so to speak, they'd say, well, we'll, we'll film a, a Gaelic games, uh, some a Gaelic games episode and we'll include that in a package that would have been mostly made up of material aimed at a British audience, some of which was quite controversial in the Irish context when it focused on the British royal family, for example. Um, So as a result of this, it meant that the depiction of Gaelic games for those years, particularly from the 1920s through to 1940s, was being driven or being produced by external British companies. And while those images today remain really important as the only moving image record we have of the sports in those periods. They also um, reveal a a peculiar eye on Ireland (laughs) and often a a limited understanding, for example, of the of the sports concerned, if there was any understanding among those who were commenting on the images. And they may, for example, in some episodes uh, refer to teams incorrect by the incorrect name or they may refer to other counties as clubs or they may use terminology associated with association football to apply to Gaelic football like for example 
uh, for the throw-in or whatever (laughs) terms that aren't um, appropriate to to Gaelic football. So in that way, these clit is a... uh, a, They they do provide, on one level, an important record of the the sports, but on another level, they also reveal... uh, the kind of disjunctures that, that that can come about, and the um, peculiarities that can come about when when these sports are being depicted from from primarily a, an external perspective. The other thing that occasionally occurs, particularly in movie British movie tone newsreels, is that they can use Gaelic games partly to affirm kind of certain stereotypes about the Irish, for example that the Irish are somehow more inclined towards violence or that they're more kind of backward. Or, um, and particularly, this is evident at points of political tension between Ireland and uh, Britain. This was particularly the case in the 1930s when there was uh, an economic war between Ireland and Britain. And you find that British movie tone newsreels, which were owned by Lord Rothermere, who also owned the Daily Mail, who was uh, a supporter of uh, Oswald Mosley's fascists and was of that inclination himself and had a, a very, um, I suppose, negative view of Eamon de Valera, who was the political leader in Ireland at that time, the, the then the, um, Prime Minister of Ireland uh, in the 1930s. And some of this is evident in how the newsreels depict Irish sport in that period and in, into the 1940s. Yeah, I, I was um, fascinated uh, a little bit at the end of that chapter when you were just pulling apart um, some of the different sympathies of the different companies, British Pate, Gaumont, uh, especially Movie movie Tone, showing that even within even the, the British um, movie producers, there's not one way of, of looking at the Gaelic games. Um, Ho- Hollywood was also interested at the time. And I, I, I think it's fair to say, um, looking at some of these same stereotypes about, about the Irish. So what kind of depictions of Gaelic games are we seeing in this era of, of Hollywood hurling? Yeah. I mean, that was for me, one of the most fascinating discoveries was, um, I suppose, first of all, discovering that there were <laughs> films, Hollywood films about hurling. Um, and, then to to kind of watch the films and and just to give you a bit of that, I don't know if I, I probably touch upon it in the book, but uh, when I was, uh, what happened there is I, I was doing some research in the US in in uh, a small library uh, archive in, in Madison, Wisconsin, and I found they had in their basement, they had, what had happened was the American Film Institute had distributed um, surviving uh, film uh, material um, across very small archives in the US to kind of share out the material. And uh, the this archive, the historical archive in, in Madison, Wisconsin, they had received a, a, a range of material, but it had been catalogued. So it was in a kind of a sealed box in their basement. So we went down there and opened it up. And we found several fascinating Hollywood productions, uh, short films from the 1930s about hurling. Um, uh, there was uh, several episodes of a very popular comedy sports sequence uh, series called, well, one called Sports Lance, the other called Sports Trill- Trills, which was produced by uh, the Vitaphone Corporation for Warner Bros. in nineteen in the early nineteen thirties, but m- produced as uh, and narrated um, by uh, uh, one of the key. Um, 
the key kind of figures in sports commentary in that period, Ted Husing. And Ted Husing was extraordinarily influential figure for sports commentary in the US uh, in the in a formative period of radio commentary and subsequently telev- television commentary on sport. And these were very, very popular, um, I suppose, sports items that were shown uh, in, in cinema schedules in this period. Um, and in it, there's two that feature hurling. And it, what was interesting to me, I suppose not, not entirely surprising, was that they're, they're, they're using hurling essentially uh, to affirm a particular stereotype about the Irish. Well, on one hand, it's about bringing out the comic potentiality of these sports. On the other hand, it's about you know hurling, looking at the sport and saying, you, you know, you couldn't, if you were to invent in a sport for the Irish that could potentially affirm the stereotype, hurling is the one that, that would seem to do it because it has that potential uh, on first encounter for violence and for injury and so on because it has you know, people whacking um, small balls with sticks and injuries that, that may occur. Now, the, of course, this is far from the reality for most at the elite level. Um, for most people engaged in hurling, there's no more potential for injury than most other contact sports. But uh, it did seem to have a kind of peculiarity about it and a potential that was responded to cinematically by Hollywood studios in this period. Particularly, um, there's the Ted Husing films in the early 1930s. There's an MGM film called Simply Hurling, a short film from 1926, which is an extraordinary depiction of of hurling and its focus on the violence of the sport and the way in which the sport is even described in terms of the publicity material around it at the time. And I've, I've refer to some of this in the book where hurling is described as a scientific form of mass murder for example and uh, this kind of is integrated into the the diegesis of the film itself and then I I also refer to a later film in the 1950s which was there was one short about hurling that Paramount um, Studios produced called uh, Three Kisses which was Oscar nominated in that year the best live action short Um, and that also is a is a fascinating depiction in terms of how it was a work produced by a Hollywood studio, but one that was also an attempt by both the Gaelic Athletic Association and the then the Irish Tourist Board, uh, Board Falsha, who worked together with this company to try and address some of the kind of stereotypical depictions of earlier depictions, not entirely successfully, but in its time, it still is a, is a fascinating uh, record of, of the sport and of, of the tensions around its depiction um, between that international perspective and the indigenous concerns about depicting sport um, more positively, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we've focused uh, mostly a little bit on kind of reportage of, of sport, but there are also dramatic depictions of these sports coming out of um, the United States in the in the UK at this time too, aren't there? Can we talk a little bit about some of these kind of uh, depictions of of hurling within within dramas? Absolutely. So um, one one of the things that we're talking a lot about hurling, and I should probably just say a little bit insofar as one of the in terms of in Ireland and in terms of Gaelic games in Ireland. 
Um, the most popular Gaelic game by far is Gaelic football. It's played much more widely across the entire island and it, it generally attracts larger crowds, um, with the exception of the All-Ireland final, the final stages of the main competitions, which are All-Ireland, what we call the All-Ireland series in both Gaelic football and hurling. They are the Super Bowls, if you like, from the American context, if I could take a, make a, a comparison with that. But in the Irish context, they are the Super Bowls of of Gaelic games but Gaelic football is generally much much more popular but what's in what, one of the interesting things for me was when I looked at films um, and particularly international productions that hurling is by far the most popular sport that's depicted and in a way a disconnects with what I was referring to already that it is it does have uh, a, it is the, perhaps the more distinctive sport it also has those kind of the, the the potential to connect with the stereotype about the violent Irish or the kind of slightly irrational or peculiar Irish stereotype. Um, it also has a kind of a connection, a mythical connection. So hurling has an ancient pedigree. It's there are descriptions of the sport or a sport like hurling going back thousands of years in in, in Gaelic manuscripts and mythology. Figures like Cúchulainn or or Sitanta in Irish mythology, so it has that kind of historical and mythological resonance which Gaelic football does not, um, and some of that we find feeding into to film as well and into into film drama, and in terms of I mentioned the Hollywood shorts, but I guess was a key figure for the representation of Ireland uh, from American cinema is 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 the. Irish American director John Ford, um, of course, an extraordinarily important figure in the classical Hollywood period, particularly for um, the Western. But he also had uh, both of his parents um, came from the west of Ireland. Um, his films are often informed by Irish culture and um, Irish concerns, particularly as that function in the American context. But with regard to Gaelic games. They also feature occasionally in his work, and this goes right from the biggest commercial film he ever commercially successful film produced was a film called The Quiet Man from 1952, which was set in Ireland and is a, a returning emigrant narrative about an Irish American coming back and trying to reintegrate into a community in the West of Ireland. But within that, there are there is a reference to, to hurling at one point, but using it again in a context where hurling is referred to. Uh, and is it prefaces a, a, a very lengthy uh, fight sequence at the end of the film, and there is the suggestion again that hurling is is connected with or juxtaposed with with violence, and in each of his other subsequent films, including um, the Rising of the Moon from nineteen fifty eight and Young Cassidy from sixty five, you have sequences that either have hurling players depicted coming back battered and bruised on stretchers after a game or hurling players engaged in, a f- in fisticuffs with members of the Royal Irish Constabulary in, in Young Cassidy. But one of the things I talk about in the book, and it's easy to look at these, as people did at the time, particularly the Rising of the Moon, around which there was a lot of controversy um, at the time and a delegation from the Gaelic Athletic Association that went to the set to complain about the way in which Gaelic games were being depicted. Um, but at the same time, one of the other things that I, I touch upon in the book is how these, uh, how Ford's films are constantly kind of, they're, they're foregrounding the stereotype, but they're 
simultaneously undermining it or questioning it or poking fun at it or interrogating it in some way. Um, and this is an important part of what um, Ford was engaged in, indeed what other Irish-American directors were engaged in at this period, which was taking kind of familiar stereotypes about the, uh, about the Irish and transforming them from what were previously negative, threatening stereotypes into something that was much more uh, non-threatening or amusing or entertaining. And it's a larger process that saw Irish America move from the margins of American society to the very center of American society. By the end of the 1950s and 1960, 61, you have the election of Irish American President John F. Kennedy. And part of the process that enabled that to happen was uh, uh, how Irish America itself transformed through things like using Gaelic games, but transforming them, using them in a kind of a comic context transforming the, the kind of concerns of the threat that was perceived around Irishness or Irish stereotypes into more acceptable and positive forms. And film were, was was certainly part of that process. Um, the other film I talk about, um, and there are several others we may come to if we have time, um, is the uh, British film Rooney, which came out in, in that period in the 1950s. And this is a feature-length film based on a, a Catherine Cookson novel um, that was had nothing to do with sport, but it was transformed entirely and moved to Ireland about the only thing that was kept from the original story, which was set in uh, South Shields in the northeast of England, was the binman central protagonist. But in the film, he's transformed into a Dublin binman whose real talents lie on the hurling field as a hurler with the local team. And in that, you can see uh, some of the stereotypes coming through from both um, The Quiet Man, but also those British stereotypes around violence and, and sport, but being worked through a kind of a comic um, idiom, if you like. So using comedy as a way to draw on the stereotypes, but also a way, I guess, to um, deactivate the kind of threat that may have been associated with those stereotypes previously. So in the latter half of the 20th century, Irish filmmakers and and Irish film organizations start to, I guess, wrest control of the the depictions of of Gaelic games away from international filmmakers and, and, and use them in particular ways. Uh, so I wonder, it, you cover this in, in chapters five and six in your book, and you're looking at the, the National Film Institute of Ireland and uh, Gail Lynn. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize. Uh, no, no, you're not. Not this. That's perfectly pronounced. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of these Irish uh, film institutions and how they were using using uh, filmic depictions of sport, sport pardon me, the way to, to, to um, you know, shape Irish identity in this, in this troubled period in, in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier that um, in the immediate aftermath of independence, so early 1920s, that the church and state were very uh, suspicious of film as a form and uh, the only state policy really towards film for the first couple of decades was censorship and controlling film and by no, 
in no way trying to encourage an indigenous film culture. Uh, things changed um, from about 1936 on, and the reason, again, it was the church that kind of led the change, given the power it held in Ireland at the period in the time, in that the then Pope, Pope Pius XI, issued an encyclical called Vigilante Cura, which for the first time identified film as actually having a beneficial and positive role, potentially, uh, as an educational resource. And this inspired members of the clergy in Ireland to become more involved in film practice. And it eventually led, in 1945, to the setting up of the National Film Institute of Ireland under the auspices of the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, and made up of a board of, I think there was five priests and some then lay in film enthusiasts on that board. Now, they began initially, but I should say, importantly, one of the people on that board was the Ard Rooney, or an English General Secretary of the Gaelic Athletic Association, Porrick O'Keeve. And one of the, initially it was set up to bring in films from international productions that could educate people, mostly you know, around Catholic theology and, and, and the like, and the missions, for example, spreading the word in, 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 in the developing world, as we now call it. But uh, very quickly, they began to make their own productions. And within three years of being set up, um, they began to make films, highlights, packages of the All-Ireland Finals in Gaelic football and in hurling um, from 1948 on. And these were very, very popular films in this period, as one could imagine. They were uh, much longer and more detailed and more insightful in terms of being produced by people who actually understood Gaelic games and could provide that kind of informed commentary on the games. Um, so from 1948 on, um, up until the emergence, and indeed after the emergence of, of television, so Irish indigenous television started filming Gaelic games from 1962 onwards, but particularly up to that period, these films, short 10-minute productions, highlights of the All-Ireland Finals and both hurling and Gaelic football were, were produced every year and circulated around the country. And these were some of the most popular early examples of, an, of what was a growing Indigenous Irish film culture. And the film, that Indigenous culture in this period through the 40s, 50s, 60s was primarily about filming um what we'd call kind of rudimentary doc documentary or, or rather than fiction, it was luck filming aspects of social reality here, sport or other aspects of life in Ireland in that period. And um, there was quite a few natural history films, for example, also produced films about um, indigenous traditional music and so on. And sport was one of the most popular examples. And it gave various filmmakers who would go on to, to success in other spheres the opportunity to learn their, their trade and to build up a kind of experience and expertise in film practice. Um, they drew large audiences across Ireland to cinemas and they're a key record for us now of the development of Gaelic games between the 40s right up until the end of the 1960s when they were being produced less often because television had basically filled that space and was now producing them. Um Galen, um, you mentioned there, so in the same period, well, in the 1950s, uh, another organisation that emerged that uh, was very important uh, was Galen, or Galen, an Irish language organisation um, that's dedicated to the promotion and preservation of the, of the Irish language. 
And they realized very quickly that film was an important tool. It was, they were, it was set up in 1953. And from then on, they, they started to produce from 1956 to 1963 an indigenous newsreel called Aviark Erin, or A View on Ireland in English, that was included sport quite prominently. And the uh, But what the advantage of the Gale in the National Film Institute, uh, films focused on just the final stage of the All Ireland series, the finals, whereas the uh, Galen shot short um, items bring of of earlier stages in that competition and in the other major competition, the National League um, across Ireland. And these films are fascinating in terms of giving us a moving image kind of record of of other parts of Ireland in this period through the 1950s and into the 1960s. And they also produced two longer films that I talk about in some length in the book. Uh, one about football, uh, Gaelic football called Pell in 1962, and one about hurling called uh, Christy Ring from 1964. And Christy Ring, um, for people unfamiliar with hurling, is um, arguably the greatest exponent of the sport of hurling ever. He's has a godlike status in Ireland for followers of Gaelic games even today. Um, it's hard to think of an equivalent in in any perhaps Messi in association football today or or, or Ronaldo or someone of of that status. So th- this is an extraordinarily important film in terms of uh, him sharing the skills of of hurling um, uh, in that period and and having a record uh, of that. But these two. Institution, these two organizations and the films they produced were uh, a critical part of an emerging indigenous film culture in which Gaelic games was an uh, again the, the one of the most popular subjects that was was featured in this in this indigenous film culture that was emerging in this period. And in in really uh, for me, uh, what stuck out for me was. Um, a, a critical way of of reforging at home and in in and inter, potentially even internationally this idea of what Irishness was instead of you know violent sports these were sophisticated gay you know so could you talk a, a little bit about uh, set that up a little bit I think it's crucial of course because your your latter two chapters kind of introduce more critical views on that as well yes. No, absolutely. Like you're, you're absolutely right. So, the, I mean, that was for both organisations, for both the National Film Institute of Ireland and for Gaelin, they were key components of a, a po- popular movement in the aftermath of World War Two to redefine and to celebrate Irishness, what it is to be Irish, and 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 in in a period that. Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland was um, neutral during World War Two, so that was a, a kind of a challenging statement and, and process in terms of a context where the UK was, of course, very, very much in the, in World War Two, and uh, and the US on both sides and a lot of international pressure. So out of that, there was this increasing sense of of the importance of our own kind of in Ireland of a distinctive culture and a distinctive um, polity, and uh, within that both the National Film Institute and Galen were using sport as a means of of celebrating and indeed of defining what it is to be Irish and that these sports were critical in that process. Uh, they were of Ireland, they were popular, they were distinctive 
and they also i mean the other i mean i touch upon this briefly but there is a gender issue here of course that we we, we need to acknowledge that these the gaelic Land association is is only uh, has only members has only um, men and boys, so to speak, it doesn't have female members. Um, there is another association that plays Gaelic games called the Ladies Gaelic Football uh, Association. And there's also a, another sport called Camogie, which is the female version of hurling. And there's a lot to cover here. I'm not going to get into this in great detail, but just to say that the Gaelic Association has always been about Irish masculinity. And in this period, there was also that focus that sport wasn't just something that was distinctly Irish and provided a means of celebrating and affirming that distinctiveness but also about the mask you know celebrating physicality and masculinity and that these are also components within what is is going on in this period in the 1950s 1960s um in the in the in the aftermath of world war ii and in a period when uh in particularly the 50s was again an extraordinarily challenging period in ireland a period of a very high unemployment high immigration and that sport was one of the few kind of positive forces within our popular cultural forces that uh, really grew and blossomed uh, in terms of, for example, the attendance at sports, which by the end of the early 1960s, you had over 90,000 people attending All-Ireland Finals in Dublin, um, it came growing hugely in that period. And that, would, that growth would be sustained through the 1960s and into the 70s. So it is in that period of the 60s and 70s, though, and here uh, we we come to your your final two chapters before your conclusion. Um, it, starting really, it, you you point out in the year 1968, such a momentous year in European history, um, a, a more critical view on on Gaelic games. So I'm wondering if you know uh, you can you can walk us through maybe a couple, uh, maybe one one iteration from that early 60s to 80s period, and then maybe one film from. Uh, the more contemporary period that presents a more complicated view of, of Irishness and through through the lens of one of the Gaelic games. Yeah, so the film that I, I talk about that's kind of a key text on a, on a number of levels, but including from the Gaelic games is is Rocky Road, uh, Rocky Road to Dublin, um, directed by Peter Lennon in, um, in 1967, released 68, a film that was not just important in terms of how it casts a critical eye on, on Gaelic games in Ireland, but more generally how it was one of the first texts, film texts, to critically engage with Irish society and culture, uh, but not from the point of view of the stereotype. But here it's about asking, searching questions about whether society had really moved on post-independence, whether the church had too much power in our, in Ireland, whether poverty and the uh, emigration and various other kind of social issues were being adequately addressed by by governments and uh within that uh peter lennon focuses to, in one section on Gale, the gaelic Lad association and gaelic games and he asks quite he kind of interrogates um, in particular, he's asking questions about the ways in which the kind of more narrow-minded conception of our Irishness that was that still continued to be promoted by that association in that period, uh, evident, for example, in uh, at that time and right into the early up until 1973, the Gaelic Athletic Association forbid members uh, or people playing or attending uh, their their sports from engaging with or attending any. F- 
inverted commas, scare, square, scarecrows, um, foreign sports. Uh, by that, they referred not to, by the way, baseball or American football, but specifically to cricket, uh, soccer and um, rugby, um, English sports, which were viewed as, uh, you know, viewed very negatively in that period by the people running Gaelic games. And this is one of the points that Lennon takes up, that we needed a, a more open, more progressive sense of Irishness and that the way in which the Gaelic Association was maintaining this ban was problematic in that context and needed to be moved beyond. And so that's part of that documentary film he produced. It looks at that and asks questions about whether this about the need for for Ireland as a whole and Gaelic Athletic Association uh, in this context as well to move on to embrace a more open a more progressive a more pluralistic sense of of Irishness in that period and those sentiments would feed into uh, what we might call a critically engaged indigenous film culture that began to emerge into the 1970s it would arrange filmmakers like, for example, Bob Quinn, Joe Comerford, Pat Murphy, who would continue that interrogation of Irish society and culture. Um, One of the films I talk about from the 1980s in the book is a film Clash of the Ash um, by Fergus Tighe, which is very much, again, casting a critical eye on Irish society in the 1980s, another decade of very high unemployment, uh, high immigration, of political malaise. um, And again, raising questions about the failure of the state to really uh, respond proactively and progressively to these challenges, one of which is the continuing very powerful uh, and repressive role of the Catholic Church in Ireland in that period. And he uses sport. He looks at, uh, uses hurling as uh, as the kind of frame for that, uh, the star player of the local hurling club um, as a part of that investigation and of that critique. Um and it's, it's still, it's one of the best kind of fiction depictions of hurling still stands today in that respect um, in its insight into Irish society, into the kind of important role that sport has in Irish culture, but also as a kind of a critically engaged text exploring the, uh, I suppose, like Lennon, he's, he's raising questions about whether part of the reason why Ireland was not engaging prog- more effectively with various social challenges was that it was too it was being held back by a, a kind of a, a nostalgic narrow nationalist kind of view of itself and of Irish society whereas it needed to be much more passive and open and pluralist um, to international influence both cultural and political and to move forward in those areas in your your, your final chapter I think for, for me, it was one of the most interesting. It, it in some ways looks at how people looked at Gaelic games as a way to re-evaluate Irish history, independence um, in particular. Um, I, I don't know if you want to talk really briefly about um, Michael Collins in, in, in Gaelic games or, or Ken Loach's Wind, Wind That Shakes the Barley, which is all my love in Gaelic games. Um, but I'd love it if you could talk about that really quickly as well. Yeah, no problem. Um, the final chapter, which my uh, the copy editor 
uh, said was one of the best titles he'd ever come across in chapter. I don't. I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just have to mention that because yeah, it. Or I could give it if you want. <laughs> yeah. So the Hurley is the new chainsaw. Gaelic games of contemporary cinema. I, I just explained that uh, is a way into to to this um, to your question, and that is that there. Uh, one of the things I, I, I talk about in this chapter is uh, the way in which, in con- in the contemporary context, you have really. Um, a variety of forces informed by those historical precedences and contemporary kind of challenges that are coming together to produce a, a, you know, a, quite some some interest, some um, I suppose um, more more curious in some ways depictions of Gaelic games, but also in, in other ways. Uh, more innovative depictions and how Gaelic games can function within an increasing transnational um, world we live in today. Um, and one of the ways in which that's evident is how it combines with, say, genre and popular genres. So I, I talk in that chapter about how Parling features within this one horror film called Dead Meat um, and how it becomes uh, a force to kind of uh, a part of uh, an attempt by an indigenous or of a local culture to protect itself from marauding zombies, right? <laughs> and that the stereotype, in a way, the stereotype of the violent uh, uh, violence associated with hurling is transformed into something that becomes about defending a local community, um, but also kind of poking fun at, at the stereotypes that we've we've already talked about. In terms of the two films you mentioned, Michael Collins and... Um, and uh, the wind shakes the barley. So I, I kind of look at these uh, and kind of con- in contrasting ways. In so far as that, Michael Collins was a film directed by um, by Neil Jordan, but produced and, and funded by Warner Bros. Again, um, but a relatively mid budget film, but a film that was uh, very much about uh, producing this epic Hollywood story based around this huge figure in, in, in the war of independence and in that kind of tumultuous period at the end of the 1910s in Ireland, Michael Collins, the leader of the military leader, I suppose you might say of the, of, of the Irish movement towards independence. And within that, it, it features one of the most, um, I suppose, Disturbing episodes in that War of Independence in in 1920, when members of the British Army um, stormed Crow Park in Dublin um, during a game between Tipperary, a Gaelic football game between Tipperary and Dublin, and opened fired on a fire on players and on supporters, and that's reenacted within Michael Collins. Um, what I touch upon in the in the film, I mean, it, it is it's extraordinary. Um, tragic moment in in Irish history and in in Irish sporting history. But in the film, it becomes an opportunity uh, to kind of contribute to the overall kind of epic drama of the film. So what was, uh, I mean, it it was obviously a tragic, tragic event in what, in what happened, a horrific event, but it's transformed from an event where soldiers climbed over a wall with rifles and fired on, on uh, spectators and players to an event where an armoured car uh, with machine guns in the film, as it's depicted, busts through the gates, goes onto the centre of the pitch and then opens fire with a machine gun on the players. It becomes this, Jordan adds this additional kind of drama to, that didn't actually happen in on the day itself, which is responding again, I guess, to the, the expectations of 
Hollywood high octane drama action that the, 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 his sense that it needed that additional kind of element to respond to what audiences might might want to see in a film um, which doesn't correlate to, to to what actually happened in the period. The Wind of Shakespeare is quite different insofar as it's um, an independent production. I mean, I think it had about five producers internationally, French, Spanish, co-founders, British, Irish, uh, directed by English independent director Ken Loach. Um, many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with Ken Loach's work, one of the most important independent directors in world cinema today. And... Um, it has a beautiful uh, opening sequence that is a three and a half minute sequence of a hurling game. And he uses hurling very deliberately in that sequence to, again, to define the distinctiveness, uh, the, uh, this distinctive culture in Ireland and in this part of Ireland, which is West Cork in the southwest of Ireland, in the colonial context, in the context of the Irish War of Independence against the British British rule and British control in in Ireland, and the I look at those two pieces together and talk about even in terms of their length of time on screen, the reenactment of Bloody Sunday in Michael Collins is in total I think about twenty seconds, where you you have you know three and a half minutes in in uh, in Gloch's film that he allows for this sequence to uh, reveal itself and to slowly kind of. Um, uh, take place to to happen to 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 move um, and to open up a, a way into a distinctive culture that you don't get in in Jordan's film because I think Jordan's film again is driven by a, a kind of a Hollywood sensibility and a Hollywood uh, exigencies about action and movement and you, you couldn't possibly have a lengthy three and a half minute f- sequence that's focusing on uh, a, a sport that most of the viewers would never have seen or be aware of whereas Loach is willing to allow for that to happen and that that can can become a defining moment which it is it's the opening sequence of the entire film and it's the sequence that defines this sport and this culture for audiences um Familiar and unfamiliar with Ireland. Well, I mean, I, I this was, I would say, my my favorite chapter. I I want to emphasize for for listeners that we've just touched on many of the things that um, Sean covers in his work, uh, and from a from my po- my point of view, leading the the questions a very a very um, kind of historical look at some of these questions, but that, that Sean also takes on. Um, film as technology, film as representation, spends a lot of time talking about narrative and reportage. Uh, so, so this is not exhaustive in, in any way. Um, I, I want to finish with one quick question, which is the traditional last question, which is now that we've enjoyed uh, this book, what can we look forward to you uh, next, Sean? What, what, what are you working on now? So right now... <sighs> I've I've a number of different, much as I wear a number of different hats in in NUI Galway. I'm also working on a number of different projects at the moment. Um, I suppose there's kind of two two areas that I'm I'm looking. One in terms of the focus on sport and film. I'm now looking at expanding the, from the Irish to looking at the the kind of European context more broadly. And uh, I've done already done some. Um, I gave a keynote at a conference. 
earlier this year where I looked, I, I did a quantitative survey of European sports cinema. It's not something that a lot of work has been done on the American context has been very well researched and covered, but the European context less so. So I've been, I'm now looking at writing, ultimately working towards a monograph, looking at the distinctiveness of the European experience of sports cinema. Um, parallel to that, I'm also looking at, at uh, developing a project here in NUA Galway, which is combining, I guess, practice and, uh, and theory and looking at how um, film uh, can be employed, or not just film, but more broadly, digital media can be employed as a as a tool to encourage and, and facilitate um, physical activity in sport. So how we can use fi- uh, digital media tools in, in that context and working with people here, working in the health sciences and um, health and, and well-being, uh, exploring ways in which using what we call a participative videography approach, we can use film uh, proactively and progressively to encourage people to reflect on their physical activity and their understanding of sport and to kind of communicate that back as part of the larger research um, question and, and, and project. Both of those projects sound fascinating for me, particularly the first one. I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that um, and be yeah, interested no. to see it when, it when it finally comes out. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, Sean. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to the New Books in Sport uh, on the New Book, a channel on the New Books Network. We've been here with Sean Crossan, who is the author of Gaelic Games on Film, From Silent Films to Hollywood Hurling Horror, and the Emergence of Irish Cinema, out from Cork University Press. Uh, thank you again very much for joining us, Sean. Thank you, everyone, for My listening, pleasure. and have, have a great day.